0: Dublin. Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul
1: Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello, could I please speak with Mona El-Tahawi? Speaking. Hello, Paul. Mona, what a pleasure to hear your ebullient voice. I'm so glad, so pleased that you're part of the quarantine tapes. Your voice was... Important, differently put, essential for me.
0: Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure and a thrill and an honor well, to join fa- the fabulous people you've been speaking to on the quarantine tape. I've
1: been, I've been very, very, very fortunate. And before getting into, into the heart of the matter, as it were, tell me, how have you been living these last three or four or five months? In other words, how has your quarantine taken shape or non, not shaped?
0: Well, I mean, on the one hand, I'm extremely lucky in that I'm alive, I have food, I have shelter, I have not had to work outside the home. And because for many years now, I've been an independent writer, I've basically been working from my dinner table. So that continued. On the other hand, I feel that my mind has slowly but surely turned into a vat of toffee (laughs) and that it's becoming kind of thicker and stickier and slower as the weeks um, proceed.
1: Yeah. This this time without an end in sight is is hard. Uh, But as you say, I mean, speaking with a number of writers, in a way, they've always been prepared for this moment because their life has been a quarantine for a very long time. But of course now... It feels all very very different. I want to begin as you know I'm a quotomaniac by profession. There's one quotation that you you love, I think, of June Jordan who said, yeah. "I have always had to invent the power my freedom requires." What yeah. does what does that mean for you particularly, Mona, at this moment?
0: I'm so glad, I'm thrilled that you're quoting June Jordan and especially that line, Paul, because that line has been on my mind so often during these past few weeks. Before this incredible uprising, revolution, that began to spread across the United States, I always felt that what was going on at home was a form of revolution, but it was like the reverse of having people on the streets it was people at home. It was almost mm. like back in the day when we used to have film. Remember when we used to shoot pictures on film and we would take them to get developed and you would get the negative. And it was like we were looking at a negative mm. of a revolution in that there were millions of people at home rather than on the streets. And so I, I, I kept thinking about what is that power that, that I require for my freedom and what must we invent? And then this incredible uprising began, and you began to see people on the streets, out of the home now. And for me, what that says is that anarchists and feminists are the ones that best invent the power our freedom require. Because June Jordan was an anarchist, June Jordan was a feminist, June Jordan was queer, and of course, she she was black, and the Black Lives Matter movement was founded by three queer black women. I identify now as queer, and I am an anarchist feminist. So I feel this is the moment where so many of us have been fighting to be free, and the tools that we fought, we, we've we've worked on, are the ones that we are now seeing leave the home and onto the streets to liberate all of us.
1: And so you, you qualify this moment, I mean, coming from you, it, 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 it has a, a heft and depth that, that perhaps other people using those words may not have. You qualify this moment as an uprising and as a revolution.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And especially now speaking to you, Paul, I mean, it, this, in the summer of 2010, Egyptian police beat to death A young Egyptian man who became a catalyst for our revolution Mm. that began on January the 25th, 2011. Now, of course, no revolution begins overnight. There were many catalysts towards that revolution. But the Egyptian revolution began on January the 25th, we say, because January 25th is police day in Egypt And so people wanted to rise up and protest the police. And that's what we're seeing in the United Mm. States. But it's about more than police brutality. It's about all the systems of oppression that will not leave us to be free, that we must rise up against in order to be free. So I absolutely see this as a revolution. This is the, the widest, largest. Most incredible protest movement in U.S. history, and I absolutely think of it as a revolution.
1: And so, what I hear you saying, Mona, without using that word, is that you you feel hopeful.
0: Yes. Oh, yeah. always. Yes, yes. I know. Yes. I know. I know I know,
1: <laughs> I know. I know. Always, um, and I know optimism. But it sounds like your optimism has. Accelerated with this moment that you call an uprising and a revolution. How so?
0: Ab- absolutely. Well, because I think when, when Egypt, when we had a revolution in Egypt, Egypt holds a place in the global imagination because of ancient Egypt mm-hmm. and the pharaohs and the pyramids. And you know, and it did inspire things like Occupy and other protests that year, as did the so-called Arab Spring generally. But the United States has a much bigger place in the global imagination be it for good or bad Uh, the the United States across the world generates a lot of love and a lot of hate but undoubtedly it occupies a massive place in the global imagination so for a revolution to happen in the United States means that it will reverberate in ways that are beyond what the Egyptian revolution um, achieved And and I'm looking now and I'm seeing people protesting you know, yes of course for black lives, and yes, of course, against what happened to George Floyd and so many other black people in the U.S., men and women, trans and cis, but I also see people across the world asking, how does this involve my life? How does this resonate with my life? And that's how a global revolution on an individual level happens across the world. That's how everyone across the world begins to ask, what is the power that I require or that I must invent, and that my freedom requires.
1: Back to, back to June Jordan. I think she will be with us as a leitmotif for our conversation, this one and future ones I hope we will have. You witnessed and participated in the Egyptian revolution of 2011. Do you feel that there are lessons from that uprising and its aftermath that might be applied yes. to America now, today?
0: Yes, absolutely. I think the, 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 the number one lesson from the Egyptian revolution and from all revolutions, and I say this as, as that anarchist feminist, especially as the feminist, is that the systems of oppression that we rise up against must primarily target patriarchy because you know we, we speak about anti-blackness and of course that must we must rise up against that. We speak against, Capitalism, especially a racial capitalism, we speak against police brutality and how the police is used as a militia almost to guard um, white supremacy, to guard racial capitalism, to to, to promote anti-blackness. But we don't speak enough about the systemic oppression of patriarchy, because what I saw happen in Egypt. And what I saw happen in so many revolutions in the region, as well as different parts of the world that have had revolutions since, is that you see a particular kind of cisgendered, heterosexual male that fights the systems of oppression in order to liberate himself. And when he feels that he has achieved liberation for himself, the revolution is considered a success. And that is just the beginning of the revolution, because unless we tackle patriarchy it's an incomplete revolution, and that was the biggest downfall of the Egyptian revolution. We did not tackle patriarchy and its forms of oppression. So, so
1: several questions. How does one tackle patriarchy? Uh, perhaps even before that, Mona, I know maybe this is a, li- a little bit tedious, but I think tedious and necessary. How would you, how would you define, if you could, patriarchy, and what does it encompass?
0: I like now to describe patriarchy as an octopus. The head of this creature is patriarchy, and each of the tentacles are the oppressions that we say patriarchy uses, because patriarchy is a system of oppressions that privilege male dominance. And so if you think of the head of that creature being patriarchy, one tentacle is capitalism, another tentacle is racism, another tentacle is capitalism, homophobia, transphobia ableism these are all systems of oppression and of course one of them is misogyny or sexism so that i can keep it along with with all the isms
1: yeah yeah and militarism
0: <laughs> and militarism absolutely all of those things fall under the purview of patriarchy and so i want us to attack the head now i uh, octopus 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 is a beautiful and very intelligent creature So my apologies to the octopus. (laughs) But I think it's Uh, uh, it's a great way.
1: Accept it, accept it.
0: (laughs) Thank you. I think it helps people to imagine it. And so it's an analogy that I like to use because depending on where you live, some of those tentacles are more powerful than others, but they work in tandem and they all hold up patriarchy. And that's why I often like to tell people who just want to focus, say, on capitalism. And they will say, if we end capitalism, Racism and sexism will be over. And I say, no, they won't. Because what now? this is now where, why I think patriarchy must be the number one goal and how we can fight patriarchy. Another analogy that I use now, because I like people to imagine shapes and creatures, is a triangle. Because this triangle represents what I call the trifecta of misogyny mm. or sexism. And that on one corner is the state, on another is the street, and on the, on the third is the home. So when we see the revolutions rise up against anti-blackness or police brutality, as they have in the U.S. now, they're rising up against the state. I want a similar rising up and a revolution against patriarchy on the street, which makes, makes it impossible for women and trans people and people who are not cisgendered, able-bodied people to walk peacefully. And without violence in public space, and I want the revolution to also rise up against patriarchy in the home, which enacts intimate partner terrorism against people, which enacts domestic abuse against people. And we've seen that increase horrifically during the pandemic under lockdown. Where we've seen domestic abuse and intimate partner um, violence rise by at least thirty percent across the world.
1: I know, I know it's it's uh, terrifying to read to read these figures and to hear the stories. To read these stories, to think also of of you know the the amount of abuses, also the amount of of people getting to know each other perhaps too well because they're yes. to, they're together all the time. Now you you uh, another. Uh, uh, Another, I I dare not say hero, but another figure that matters to you enormously, uh, perhaps uh, maybe not like June Jordan, but nevertheless tremendously, is Howard Zinn. And Howard Howard Zinn said the greatest danger was civil disobedience, the submission of individual conscience to governmental authority. Such obedience led to the horrors we see in totalitarian states and in liberal states. It led to the public's acceptance of war wherever the so-called democratic government decided on it. What kind of civil disobedience do, uh, do you think, Mona, would you like to see at the present moment? Or differently put, what kind of civil disobedience is necessary?
0: Absolutely. He, he actually said the greatest evil is civil obedience, not yes. civil disobedience.
1: Did I say disobedience? And oh, my yes, goodness. Yes. Forgive, forgive me. Uh, thank no, you. No, no. no. I, 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 I love that. I, that. That would be a big mistake. Civil obedience.
0: Yes. And, and I, I love that civil disobedience is, is, you know, primary in your mind, because right. that's exactly what any revolution needs because I think that we are socialized into obedience and politeness and civility. And, you know, this is just the way it is. This is what a good person does. You have to be polite. You have to ask for your rights in a civil and uh, obedient way. And and that that's exactly how the systems of oppressions ensure that we are never free. And this is why I'm, a proudly profane person. I know. I, told- I know. I know, <laughs> I know.
1: I know. I'm. I'm. I'm surprised. We've been speaking for 15 minutes. And I haven't Uh, said anything uh, profane (laughs) yet. I I mean, I want my money back. I mean, what's happening? I
0: know. I know. It's because I'm just so excited to speak with you, Paul. Uh, Because usually, usually I speak all, I begin all my conversations. And you know, because I've done it in front of you, I begin by saying, hello, this is Mona Al Sahawi," and as always, fuck the patriarchy. (laughs) Thank
1: God. Now I'm speaking. (laughs) Now I'm speaking with Mona. Okay. We can. Now you know. We can proceed. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so so that, that that is like the most minor of revolutions to speak profanely because that I consider is the verbal equivalent of civil disobedience. And so I um, insist on disobeying against any kind of civility that is meant to contain me. And so when, when Howard Zinn speaks about civil obedience being the big, the biggest evil. And in totalitarian states, of course, it's very easy to see it because basically the authoritarian regime, the totalitarian state, will not allow you to, to be free. And it's easy to see that. It's less easy to see that. It's much harder to see that happening in an ostensible democracy like the United States or Australia or the UK. But you look at what's happening in the U.S. now and you see how the police have been reacting to protesters. And you see the language that is used against people who have every right to rise up, and they're called um, rioters, and they're they're said to be um, engaged in chaos, and they incite terrible words. And so we must, as a revolutionary act, to reverse those words and use them to describe the militarized police, use them to describe the fascist truck, called Donald Trump. Now, see, that the, the profanity is unleashed now, Paul. Uh,
1: well, well the, it, it's about time.
0: <laughs> and the way that fascist fuck has mobilized the military against people, because we have to make those connections. Because as an anarchist, I insist, we make the connections between the police and the military and the state and the way that the state uses policing of all kinds, including incarceration, ICE, and borders, to keep all of us, prisoners of the state.
1: In 2018, you wrote about Gina Haspel in the New York Times. More specifically, you wrote about Egypt's role in the U.S. government's torture and rendition program. What do you think the Americans should and need to know about that issue now?
0: I think most Americans... Really think about what their country does outside of its borders. Yes. And I think this really came home to them when um, there were a few days there where Trump had said he wanted the military to squash uh, the, pro- the revolution. And then um, Tom Cotton uh, had an op-ed published in the New York Times. I mean, for fuck's sake, how that happened. Thank goodness the opinion editor was forced to resign, essentially. And I think that captured for Americans for just a few moments what the, the, the imperial power that the United States is uh, because it was now coming home. Yeah. And they fail to see what it does to other people, because when they look at the police and they see how brutal the police is here, they have to remember that the United States military is that police in other people's country. And the two are connected. And so when I wrote about Gina Haspel and how she and so many at the CIA are still, must still be held accountable for torture, including asking other regimes such as that of my country of birth to torture for them, Americans have to understand what crimes their country has committed outside of the borders, not just within. And it shames me deeply that Egypt did that, because I know that that same regime that tortured for the CIA and that tortured for the Bush administration tortures every day inside Egypt. Yeah. All of those connections, domestic and global, have to be made.
1: And and you you make them in a, in, a, in a most astounding way in that article where you write how when it has so readily relied on Egypt to take torture further than its own operatives would or could can any American administration ever seriously hold our government accountable for its torture against us, the Egyptian people? The answer, it can't, and it doesn't. Absolutely.
0: Uh, Absolutely. And and that that has been so clear, Paul, across the world, among the U.S.'s so-called allies, who essentially are required to act as client states, mm. that the U.S. gives as in aid or sells billions of dollars worth of weapons and in return for this so-called stability, which is basically do what you want to your people, but just, you know, do what we want you to do as well in your part of the world. And that's why when we rose up against Hosni Mubarak, we had to remind Americans that, Five successive U.S. administrations, Democrat and Republican, propped up this dictator of ours. And right now, Donald Trump calls our current dictator my favorite dictator. And so there is no the hypocrisy of U.S. foreign policy is is, is irrelevant whether it's a Democrat or a Republican in the White House.
1: Something different. Um, you have spoken beautifully about ambition and freedom in the context of women in your family, beautifully. What does a word like ambition mean to you at this moment?
0: Well, thank you, Paul. That means a lot to me because the the chapter on ambition in my most recent book, The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls, was the hardest chapter to write. Why? (laughs) You know, because I felt that I was trying to take ambition to places where we don't usually see it.
1: I've never never seen it uh, described that way, ever. That's why I'm asking you the question. Ambition Thank uh, you. ambition, and aspiration are never seen in that context. So unpack it a little bit, also with the difficulty of writing such a chapter.
0: Yeah, that, it means the world to me that you said that. I am thrilled. So ambition for me means being more than. And usually, ambition is kind of quantified as becoming a CEO for women, uh, becoming a CEO, uh, becoming a millionaire, having a corner office. It's always a very capitalist, corporate, corporal, or or like corporation or corporatized. I can't even say the word because I'm not keen on it. But it's always in the context of a corporation, you know, businesses, money, and and that's how success is often also um defined and i wanted to go beyond that for me ambition is to be more than more than we're, what we're told we can be and so when i talk about my mother and my grandmother and what i call the map of ambition mm. that i was given mm. as as a girl mm. you know i look at my maternal grandmother who was a woman who was married after high school who was pregnant 14 times and 11 of those pregnancies went to term and my mother was the eldest of those children. And then I am the eldest of my mother's children. And my mother not only finished high school, she also finished university, got her her bachelor's degree, her master's degree and a PhD in medicine. And then she had three children. I'm the eldest. And then I looked at this map and I thought, hmm, what do I want to do with that? Do Do I want to follow like my mother's rivers and my mother's borders? Or do I just want to, tear this map up, Being the anarchist that I am, I don't believe in borders, and I'm just going to rewrite a completely new topography for myself, New story, which is essentially what I did.
1: A new story.
0: Yes, a new story in which I am child-free by choice, in which I, I, I had the grades to go to medical school, and my mother's dream was for me to become a doctor. But I wanted to be a journalist because journalism for me at the time was freedom. And then I've now left news reporting behind. And I'm now an essayist, commentator, nonfiction writer, and an independent author because I did not want a corner office. And I did not want to be a CEO. And I wanted to be free. So my map constantly changes.
1: But in a way... um... You, 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 you. you, There's a little part of it that you've followed because, though maybe not a medical doctor, you offer diagnosis.
0: Oh, (laughs) of political what? How the political well-being of the body politic.
1: (laughs) Now, um, in in closing, sadly, but not quite, quite, quite yet, we we began with June Jordan. And we'll finish with Audrey Lord. Before ah. before I mention the sentence by Audrey Lord that I think is close to you, that sentence brought to mind another one. So I'll precede it by what you know might be coming, though we haven't rehearsed any of this. Herta Müller said, "The words in our mouth do as much damage as our feet on the grass," but Ooh. but so. Do our silences. Yes. How does that resonate with you?
0: It's beautiful. It's it's truly beautiful because it speaks to the power of the word and it speaks to the power of the voice. And and it, it's it's an issue that I wrestle with a lot because I'm a writer and an an activist and an agitator and an instigator. And my constant struggle is should I be out on the street? Or should I be here writing, and how do I connect the two?
1: Before mentioning Audrey Lord, um, Arundhati Roy has spoken about this moment, particularly of the pandemic she was mentioning in that time when she wrote the piece, as being a portal. Yes Do you see it that way?
0: Absolutely, Paul. I have a ring that I wear on my finger and I made a video because I, I I make videos now on the Feminist Giant. Feminist Giant is my persona. And Feminist Giant <sighs> makes dispatches from the pandemic <laughs> that are full of fuck this and fuck that, of course. <sighs> of course. And one of them is called um, The Door. And I didn't know that Arundhati Roy had written this. And uh, after I made this video, several people said to me, oh, did you read Her essay, And I I hadn't, but I'm so glad that she said that because I I have this ring that I wear that is written on it. Oh, you who opens doors. It's an invocation or a prayer. Take it in whatever way you want. And in in that dispatch from the from the pandemic, I speak about this moment as a moment of we are inside right now. But when we open the door, we must open the door to a better world because a better world is possible.
1: Yeah, and, and, so, and, and, and not go back to what passes for normal.
0: Absolutely, because that was another dispatch from the pandemic that Feminist Giant made. Fuck normal. There is no going back to normal, because normal Got is us what... in trouble. Exactly. So no more normal.
1: Now, now the, the the Audrey Lord with which we will finish, as we began with June Jordan, we began with... I have always had to invent the power my freedom requires. That was June Jordan. And Audre yes. Lord ends our conversation sadly today. And she said, your silence will not protect you. Tell yes. me.
0: Absolutely. It's, it's the importance of speaking and the power of speaking Up. and how understanding that even if you follow the rules, even if you're civil, even if you're polite and all of this, your life remains in danger because of the systems of oppression that never want you to survive anyway. So don't be silent. Fuck polite. Fuck civility. Speak and be free.
1: Mona, it's been such a distinct pleasure to to speak with you. I stay safe. I can't wait until we see each other in person again. But for now... You certainly have spoken, and you certainly have spoken up. Um, you've, you've, even, you've even used some of the words that I was hoping you might use. Um, <laughs> so I am, I, am, I am really delighted to have you on this call. Uh, do you want to leave us with, a, with something in 20 seconds?
0: Thank you so much for having me, Paul. I just want everyone who's listening to this to ask themselves, what can I do? What is my role in the revolution? Because we all have a role.
1: Mona, thank you. Thank you for those marching orders. I hope people will hear you loud and clear. Thank you, Mona.
0: Thank you so much, Paul. It's been an honor and a thrill. Bye-bye. Bye. To support this show and DubLab's progressive programming,
1: Go to dublab.com slash support.